Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 38. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, this man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put the mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, can we thank Tommy Lyle for reading that passage? That was a long one, wasn't it? <clears throat> thank you, Tommy Lyle. Uh, hey, we've actually been in a sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And really, the working thesis for this series has been this, that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's impossible, in fact, to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. In other words, there are all sorts of ways in which I might have this exterior of religious superficial maturity. I could do pious practices like prayer or reading scriptures. And yet, when it comes to my emotional life, the way that I handle my anxieties or anger or the ways in which I'm not present with my spouse. I could be a pastor of a large mega church and yet if I'm defensive with my wife, if I don't uh, listen to her, if she does not feel loved by me, then really, am I really all that mature? And the answer well, we're, as we talk about this, uh, this whole series is basically no. That's it. It's impossible to be emotionally immature and spiritually mature at the same time. In other words, all of these things are linked together. And one of the images that we've been looking at, for instance, is this image of an iceberg, that there's this 10% above the surface and there's this 90% below the surface. And one of the things it means to follow Jesus is to allow God into that 90%. To not simply be about behavior modification, although we'd love for behaviors to change, but instead we're really looking for transformation. Not just information, and isn't it true that even as you sit here and as you ponder, if you were to think about like your own life with God, like you're sitting here because there's at least this small kernel of desire to want something more, a transformational life. Not just information to be downloaded into you because the sermons just aren't that interesting. But really, to be transformed from the inside out, to allow God into that 90%, into the parts of us, perhaps, that we don't want to show other people. And it's so easy to come in with like a plastic type of spirituality, uh, especially in our Sunday rhythms, and to give people this image of who we are. But we won't dare allow God into our addictions. We won't dare allow God into our interpersonal relationships. We won't dare allow God into our woundedness and our trauma. But really the invitation is, will you allow God into those spaces? So much so that last week we talked about this theme of allowing God into our grief and loss. Now, in a lot of religious communities, especially in the West, like grief and loss are emotions that we just want to ignore. Instead, we just want to say, be joyful, happy, clappy. It's all good in the hood. Or whatever you're saying about being happy all the time. 
And, and yet what God invites us to is a life where we're actually inviting him into our grief and our losses. That even in painful areas of our lives, we allow God to transform those things. Uh, the week before that, we talked about our family of origin. And some of it, not to say that every family is bad. In fact, there's a lot of good things from our family of origin. But to take even the woundedness from our family of origin and to allow God to transform that. Now, do you see how we're excavating deeper into our hearts and our souls. We're actually allowing God, hopefully, into more painful areas of our lives. Now, today, there's a topic of journeying through the wall. Now, the wall is something that um, uh, mystics and Christian theologians throughout our tradition have talked about that is essential for our spiritual growth. Now, here's an image that outlines what the wall looks like. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about the wall, but really the wall goes back centuries from authors like Ignatius of of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila. And uh, there's actually some by the name of uh, St. John of the Cross who wrote something called The Dark Night of the Soul. Now, I mean, just imagine that, right? Whether you're a Christian or you're not, and maybe you've heard this phrase or you're hearing this phrase for the first time, guess what? In the, in the Christian journey, there's a dark night of the soul. Like, I, I mean, if I heard someone say that to me, I'd be like, oh, really? No, thanks. <laughs> I'll go to the bright night of the soul. But there's this dark night of the soul. And what does that mean? Well, St. John of the Cross, and throughout the Christian tradition, there have been teachings about how there are these prolonged seasons of bewilderment and suffering and doubt and pain that God actually uses for his people. Now, there might be some rumors out there that being a Christian means health, wealth, and prosperity, and I wish I could stand before you and say, actually, that's what God offers to you, but I can't. Because time and time again, there's these teachings about things like the wall. The wall are these prolonged seasons where God teaches us through pain and suffering and difficulty and doubt. And it's one of the things that we want to normalize in our language as a faith community right here in Midtown Manhattan, to be a people who who encompass all of life, not just the happy, clappy moments. And of course, I would love that for each one of you. And if you're going through that, I'm so glad you're here. But this is the normal journey uh, that many of these Christian authors would actually write about. First, there was a life-changing awareness of God. There was this moment where you become awakened to the idea of Jesus and who he is. Then there's discipleship and learning. Now, this is not to say that these first three stages, by the way, are like, oh, this is like a lower class. Not in any way. In fact, we as a church, we promote all of these different stages. There's this moment of learning information about God. And then it goes to this exterior life of serving. Uh, The outer life, it's very active. But then that's usually when at some point in your journey, in your Christian journey, or maybe you're someone who's just exploring faith, I wish I could keep this from you, but there's this moment where the wall comes into play, and the wall, again, is this prolonged season. Maybe it's a betrayal that you experience in your family or betrayal in your church. Maybe it's a long season, perhaps, of infertility as a married couple that you're just wrestling through, and you've been wrestling with God. Maybe it's just a a series of catastrophic events that have just led you to question God and what he's doing. And your faith has started to become dismantled in different ways. And you're wondering, how could God allow something like this? The reality is, no matter what your background is, no matter what your social class is, no matter how much money you make, how, how pristine your LinkedIn profile looks, every single human being experiences grief 
and loss. And one of the invitations of this wall is the belief that with these walls come to every single one of us. And, and it's this make or break moment of like, will your, will your belief about God, will it have enough elasticity to embrace all that God is doing? Or will it be a moment that you just say, you know what, forget it. Because honestly, these walls can be incredibly, excruciatingly painful. Now, I wish I didn't have to preach about this. But this whole series has been about what real life is like, isn't it? And real life is full of loss, whether it's illness, whether it's the loss of loved ones. This whole pandemic has been this massive wall. And hasn't this massive wall, it's exposed all the idols that you and I have about what's important, about who's important. And what God is doing in even this season, what he does is he shapes us through that wall. And when we get through the wall, hopefully what it does is it transforms us. That 90%, we can start having this inward journey of love with God. Now, the outer behaviors as it relates to our faith is not defined by simply behavior modification. But instead, there's been something internally that's been transformed. And it's not only that, but that leads then to an outer life that's informed by an inner life. And of course, then what people experience of us is a loving presence that's deeply transformative. Now, isn't that interesting that we go through these stages? It's not like we're saying like, oh, there's just one wall in your life. And if you get through it, you're going to reach life transforming, loving kind of, it's going to come oozing out of you. The reality is God sometimes brings multiple walls into our lives, especially if you're a Knicks fan. I'm just kidding. Sorry. That was, yeah. Um, but this is, what, this is what God does. He uses these walls, these moments of disillusionment. And he wants to build something deeper. Maybe you've been through a breakup, and the breakup has, has led to this really dry, painful season of grief. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Now, these walls are more intense than simply suffering or trial. Now, here's the thing. When I was at about 24 years old, uh, I was um, seeing my Christian therapist at the time. And during that time, I was wrestling through some losses of my own. Uh, there were relatives that were passing away. And I was wrestling through my own kind of family trauma that I had been through. And I remember my Christian therapist, this is what he said to me. He said, he said you know, Drew, he said, after the age of 21, Spiritual lessons can only be learned through failure and suffering. And I was like, how about 25? Can you change it to 25? Like, why 21? That seems so arbitrary. You know? And uh, he, he, said, he said, it's not a principle. He said, that's just what I found in life. Like, and, and you know what's interesting now, you know, years later, as I, as I reflect on that lesson, as I look at the moments in my life when things were up and to the right, I realize when it comes to spiritual lessons, I learned a lot actually about pride. <laughs> I learned when things were up and to the right and things were going swimmingly well, I learned how to be really prideful. But there's something deeply mysterious and transformative that depression has taught me. Pain and loss has taught me. And I imagine as each one of us, as we walk through life, what happens is we can look back and we say, wow, those were some of the worst times. But somehow, those were the times where God really shaped me into something that looks more like his loving presence.
Now, here's the thing. You might be wondering, like, in the scriptures, does it talk about it? Actually, the scriptures talk about this all the time. The scriptures were written primarily to a people who are oppressed and marginalized and in pain and suffering and going from crisis to crisis. That's why the earliest Christians... Uh, check out what James writes in his letter, who's the brother of Jesus, who had witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at what James writes about trial and suffering. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Wait, wait what? This sounds counterintuitive. Again, in my Western mind, what I think is like a good life is the one that's pain-free and suffering-free. And look at what James says. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this is just one passage, but the scriptures are replete with teachings about suffering and pain and persecution and how every single person who claims to follow Jesus will encounter these things. And the question for you and for me, will you allow your faith and will I allow my faith to hold these things together or will it be something that eventually breaks me? Uh, one of the, the Scazzaro writes that there's four ways in which these walls transform us into the inner journey. Uh, the first way is a greater level of brokenness. Uh, some of you who know the story of Hope Church and how it started, you've heard the story of how uh, when I was at this previous pastoral position, there were two things that were keeping me at this church as I was wrestling through my own soul. One was prestige, because it's a fairly well-known church with a robust budget and a great social profile in the city. And the second was money because it's not like I made a lucrative job there, but it was a job that helped pay the bills. And so I realized in my own story, there were two things that were keeping me at this church as a vocational minister, prestige and money. Now, um, you don't even have to be a Christian to know those are really bad reasons to be a pastor. <laughs> and so, so that's when I ended up resigning. And I realized like it was one of the most painful seasons of my life. But one of the things that God taught me through it, and I wouldn't want to go through it again, was I was just so arrogant. And I needed those things, those tentacles of prestige and money just to be broken out of me. And what's so sad and honestly fear-inducing for me is I realized throughout my life there are moments when I just need a greater level of brokenness and dependence and humility. This is one way in which God brings walls into our lives he brings greater brokenness into our lives. The second thing that Scazzaro talks about is a greater appreciation for holy unknowing or mystery. Now, the reality is uh, people here in Midtown, our Manhattan, Midtown congregation, it's, you know, you all are the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, went to the best schools, have the best jobs, make tons of money and and the reality is you're probably extremely talented and you're, you're so talented, in fact, and so smart, in fact, that you tend to rely on yourself, your own ingenuity, your own hard work, your own industriousness. And I, the same was true for me in most of my life. And sometimes it is still true. I want to trust in my own instinct, my own skill. And one of the things for me, especially when it comes to theology and God, is I wanted to have all the answers about God and why he does things. And I remember reading books on end about theology and apologetics and having all these answers that people are wrestling with. But I was just kind of arrogant. <laughs> Mr. Bible answer man who couldn't really sit with someone in their pain. One of the things that I couldn't really embrace is mystery. The fact that God is God and that I am not. 
I remember a mentor of mine when we were talking about 9-11 and he said to me, Drew, what would you say if someone came to you and said, uh, I don't believe in a God who would allow 9-11 to happen? And I remember as I'm sitting with this mentor, and it, it, this was a time, again, when I was in my early 20s, and I was thinking of all the arguments for the existence of God in the midst of suffering, uh, right? At first, like the ontological argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument for the existence of God, all these arguments for the existence of God. And, and as I'm wrestling with all this, he says to me, he goes, after a few seconds, he says, Drew, knowing you, you're thinking up all these arguments about why God exists. And I was like, so? <laughs> right? like, and then it, he says to me, but while you're thinking about all these answers, what you didn't have the courage to do was to sit with someone and to listen to them about why they don't believe in God, and you would have realized that they lost a loved one during the attacks. And you're so quick to have answers that you can't just sit and be a loving presence. You know, some of us, when it comes to theology and faith, which is all good, we're all for it. We're, taking a, we're teaching a course right now on how to read and study the Bible. But there's also this element of holy unknowing. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the, the secret things belong to God. There's a hidden will of God that some of us, that all of us don't ever fully comprehend or understand because that's who God is. And maybe what God needs to do in these walls is just to humble us to a point where we start to embrace mystery rather than trying to have all the answers and be the smartest person in the room? What if we allowed God to actually have those answers and leave room for that mystery? Thirdly, what the wall does is it ends up giving to us a greater level of detachment from things of the world. We realize, and hasn't that been the case during this global pandemic? There have been moments when we realize, wow, that wasn't really that important, that wasn't really that important. In fact, there are these moments of pain and loss and suffering that gives us this sense of detachment, of realizing what really is important. And lastly, uh, what the wall does is it brings us into a certain level of being able to embrace waiting. Now, I know, as New Yorkers, you are like, I hate that word, waiting. <laughs> right? I mean, even with the subways now, it has like five minutes left. I mean, isn't it, like, even though it says five minutes, I like don't trust it. Five minutes. I'm just like, I'm still like waiting. Like, oh, what's going on, right? Like waiting is so difficult. But how many of us need to lose control and power and to realize just as human beings that we are simply human beings? You see, these are some of the ways in which walls shape us and form us into that 90% that we're talking about. Not just these superficial ways of being, but being a people who are transformed from the inside out. Now, this story that Tommy Lyle read for us, and some of you are like, how in the world, when are we going to get to this story that Tommy Lyle read? There's a story. Now, check out the story. It says, as he went along, this is Jesus. He saw a man blind from birth. Now, this clue is given to us, and it's very important. There's other passages where Jesus heals blind people. And uh, like, for instance, there's a blind person who actually, after he's healed, he says, it looks like trees. How does he know it looks like trees? It's because he could see before, but he had become blind during his lifetime. Now, this clue is given that he's born blind, and you'll see the significance of it, because check out what it says. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, why does why, why he ask that question, who sinned? It's because the ancient scholars and rabbis believed and would teach that if someone was born with an infirmity that way, it's because they committed a sin at birth. 
or their parents did at birth. Maybe if the baby was in the womb and punched the mom or something out of anger while in the womb. It was a moment of like, see, you sinned at birth. Or there was some sort of generational curse on the family. So if you can imagine, for this man in particular, he's born blind. So people see him and they say like, oh, you're that sinner who was born blind because you were in sin at birth. Or it was your parents, your parents, your family, your lineage is cursed. So you can imagine like the messages that this man has received. Now, look at how Jesus addresses suffering and pain and loss. Look at what he says. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So just in one quick statement, he says, listen, it's not uh, just because of this, then this. He said, it's not that easy to explain. That's not how suffering works. But look at what Jesus says. But this happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here's essentially what Jesus says. He says, listen, the story of suffering and pain is too complicated for me to explain to you right now. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm guessing he's saying. He basically says, however, wherever suffering exists and pain exists, it's an opportunity for the work of God to be displayed. And you're about to see something's about to go down. I mean, I love this. Like, Jesus is basically saying, like, sometimes we have all these ruinations of suffering and why it exists. And and he he basically says, listen, this is an opportunity for God to work. And the same is true for you and I. Instead of doubting and questioning and all these things, we're allowed to doubt and we're allowed to question. But we're invited now. Suffering becomes an opportunity for the work of God to be displayed. So this is what happens. Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes. And he tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So what, is, what happens? This man, I mean, can you imagine? He's got mud on his eyes. He's like, all right, pool of Siloam. Which way to the pool of Siloam? Right? And he starts bumping into people. Like, everyone's like, hey, hey, what are you doing? He's like, go to the pool of Siloam. Somehow he ends up making it to the pool of Siloam. He goes and he wipes the mud from his eyes. And he looks and the reflection that he sees, the first thing that he sees is his own image. Can you imagine this? Like, and then he can just see everything for the first time in his life. Splashes of color everywhere. I mean, can you imagine the first time this curse has been reversed? And he just, he's like, who am I going to tell, <laughs> right? Like, I can't wait to tell people. I can imagine, like, he's running out of the water. He's splashing in the water, having just one big party in the water. And he starts to tell people, anyone that will listen, like, hey, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Now, here's what happens in the story, though. The townspeople are basically like, yo, 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 like, chill out. Like, are you, is this the guy? Is this the guy who, like, smelled and was, like, the beggar that was Blind from birth? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's me. That's me. It's me. Well, what happened? Well, this guy named Jesus, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I can see. And he's just, and these guys, they're like, ah, you know what? I, I don't know. Uh, and the people are incredulous about it. And so what do they do? They actually say to him, like, oh, uh, why don't you talk to the Pharisees? He's like, uh, okay. Goes to the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders. Now, during that time, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they had all these contentions with Jesus and who he was. And so he goes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, who are you? He's like, I was born blind. Jesus did this. He told me to put mud on my eyes. I don't know who he is, but I was blind, but now I see. 
And the Pharisees are basically, oh, man, but this Jesus character, he's kind of suspect. And they're like, wait, what, what, what happened? He goes, listen, this is what happened. I don't know who he is. All I know is that I was blind, but now I can see. The Pharisees end up saying to this man, like, listen, uh, we just, we need to verify this. Now, can you imagine this man? He's just basically like, guys, can someone just throw me a party? Like, I was, I was blind, but now I was, can someone just please celebrate? I'm just telling the truth. Please. The Pharisees end up calling for the man's parents. The man's parents come. And can you imagine this guy's just like, yeah, tell my parents. That's who I want to tell. I want to tell them. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't my fault. Tell them. Go. Bring them, you know. The text tells us the parents come, but the parents kind of distance themselves from the man because they're worried about what the Pharisees will think. So the parents say, uh, listen, he's of age, ask him. We don't, have, we don't have anything to do with this or this man. I mean, can you imagine this guy? He's like, Mom, Dad, what do you mean? You know, it's, it's me, your son. Don't you want to celebrate? Don't you want to throw a party? This man is met with incredulity from the townspeople. He's shunned by the Pharisees. And now he's abandoned by his parents. Again, the Pharisees ask him, hey, what happened? And the man's like, oh my goodness, listen. I was blind, but now I see. What's your problem? And he has this exchange with the Pharisees. And after this exchange, the Pharisees become so threatened by this man. Look at what happens. To this, the Pharisees replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. All those haunting beliefs that you had about yourself, it's true. You were a sinner at birth. How dare you lecture us? And notice the words, it says, and they threw him out. The Greek word for being thrown out is the same word for being cast out. It's the same word that's used for casting out demons. And he's now thrown out of the community. He's excommunicated from the community. Can you imagine what this man was going through? Like, can you imagine he's all of a sudden, he's alone. He, he notices his tattered clothing, his grimy skin. And he starts to think to himself, I never knew that seeing the light 
would hurt this much. I can imagine he starts to think to himself, like, I wish, I wish I had never met this Jesus guy. You know, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the most painful, maddening things about Christian faith is that sometimes seeing the light can lead us straight into the darkness. You know what's crazy is there's stories of people, God's people who are faithful to God, who, where life begins to fall apart for them. Like, there's a story of David. He's on the run from Saul because David is the person who's going to take up the throne and Saul is the king and Saul feels so threatened. And there's this moment where uh, David has this opportunity to actually take Saul's life, but instead of doing it, he cuts the corner of his robe. And later when he gets enough distance from Saul, he's like, Saul, look, the Lord delivered me, delivered you into my hands. And look, I could have taken your life, but I was more honorable than that. And I would not touch the Lord's anointed. So here is proof. Like, let's just end this beef. So that's my translation. And then uh, Saul is basically like, oh, David, you are much more noble than I. And you would think that after that, Saul would like cool it. But a couple chapters later, Saul tries to kill David again. He's after him again. And he's just kind of like, wait, 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 God. Like, David did everything right. And life ends up even more difficult for him. Has that ever happened to you where you feel like you've just done everything right? When it came to your job and the way that you worked with integrity and kindness to people. And yet when it comes to performance reviews or raises or whatever else it might look like or even how you're seen within the company and you just feel like you've done everything right to try to honor God with the way that you go about your work. And yet things at work just haven't worked out. Or maybe you're a single person, and when it comes to like honoring God with your body and the way that you go about relationships, like you've tried to do everything right, and you're wondering when there will be breakthrough in your life, and you see other folks getting into relationships, and you're just wondering, and you're just longing, and you're like, God, I've done everything right. I still don't get what I want. I can imagine this man's like, I just, I never knew seeing the light would hurt this much. There were moments in my life with my own journey with my own family when I started to bring up some issues that needed to change within my family. And I thought, of course, that my family system and my father would respond the right way. And of course, as I was having the courage to bring up some of the painful, traumatic wounds in my family of origin with my dad, I remember bringing up to him, like, hey, here are the ways that I've been hurt and how we experienced you as a child. And my father, I remember it was a miracle that he even listened to me. But after the conversation, he basically told me, you're not my son anymore. Don't talk to me again until you're ready to repent. And I just remember being like, oh, that did not go well. And I thought God was calling me to walk into something that just doesn't work out. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in a place where you've wondered when God will come through? 
Now, some of you, um, maybe this is your first Sunday here, and you're like, this is a depressing sermon. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I want this. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian, and you're like, I thought it was going to be cool and fun. But sometimes seeing the light leads you straight into the darkness. It's one of the most bewildering things and one of the most maddening things about life with God. Thankfully, it's not the end of the story. Look at what happens. Jesus heard that they had ekbalowed him. They had thrown him out. And then he went to find him. He went looking for the man. And he has this exchange, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, the man basically is like, listen, I don't know who to trust, what to believe. Like, I just know that ever since I was able to see, things have gotten worse. And Jesus says, I am the man. And he says, Lord, I believe. Here's one of the most beautiful truths of Christianity. Because there's the maddening truth of that sometimes seeing the light leads us straight into the darkness. But here's one of the most beautiful truths. That though the world may cast you out, Jesus will find you. He'll find you. He'll see you. Some of you, maybe you've gone through an intense season of loneliness, and you're wondering, does God see me? Will he find me? I assure you, he will. Some of you, maybe it has been a season of depression. Maybe it's been some catastrophic losses that you've experienced during the pandemic. Maybe it's ways in which you have felt like you've been doing everything right. And still, there are these unanswered prayers. And you're wondering when. Though the world may cast you out, Jesus will find you. And if you've ever doubted whether he really would or not, I mean, this is the story that we believe about this Jesus, is that we believe that Jesus would actually go to the ultimate darkness, the darkness of death, so that you and I might experience the richness of his light. A light that is not contingent upon what happens in your life or circumstances, but a life that is found in a God who you and I can trust as the one who, whenever you've gone through the darkest valley, he says, behold, I am with you. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. This is the Jesus that we serve. 
And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite each one of us, when it comes to whatever journeys we're facing, when it comes to any walls that we're facing or any wall that we faced, I want to remind us that though the world may cast us out, Jesus will find us. He'll find you. He will be with you. He's for you. His grace is available today. Let's all stand. The worship team, come forward. Apologize for a bit longer sermon today. You know, the invitation of this series is to allow Jesus into every space of our lives, including the 90%, including some of the painful parts, including some of the parts that perhaps we've wondered whether God is present with us, whether he will come through. And today, what I'd like for us to do is I'd love love for us just to, if you can just open up your hands in this posture of receiving, almost as an invitation to the living God to say, God, yeah, I want more of you. I want to trust that what you're doing in me is significant, even though it's painful, even though it hurts. But I believe and I trust that you are doing the work. Father, I pray over this group right now. Pray for those going through a season of loneliness and just wondering where you are present. Pray that you would grant them the openness and the courage to know that you see them and you will find them and that you want to invite them into a deeper journey. Pray for anyone who's been through a season of unemployment or wondering what's next in their work and um, just some of the complications and pain that that brings. And I pray that you would show them that here you are for them and with them. And God, I pray that today that we can sing of your grace that continues to reign in our lives, the grace that finds us in every season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.